President Trump slams Joe Biden by citing the world's worst dictator. We examine the EU elections and BuzzFeed leads a media assault against conservatives. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. There is indeed a lot of news. Big EU elections. I know people don't follow this stuff particularly closely. We'll go through it anyway. Plus, we'll get to the presidential race first. People are excited to digitize their old analog formats with Legacy Box for a lot of reasons. Save your family films and photos from degrading or being lost forever. If you're unable to play your recordings because you don't have your VCR anymore or your camcorder is broken, you can ensure your family history is preserved forever. You know, I'm somebody who believes that preserving family memories is pretty much the most important gift you can give somebody. And especially with Father's Day coming up, it's an incredibly important gift. That's where Legacy Box comes in. You can send your Legacy Box filled with old home movies and pictures. They will then do the rest. They professionally digitize your moments onto a thumb drive, digital download, or DVD. They have easy-to-follow instructions, safety barcodes included for every single item. Receive all your original recorded moments back along with perfectly preserved digital copies. I'm doing this for my parents. My parents have boxes and boxes of old pictures out in the garage, old film out in the garage, and it's just sitting there moldering. Instead of it doing that, they could be able to access that with Legacy Box. Legacy Box is the world's largest, most trusted digitizer of home movies and photos. All the work is done by hand right here in the United States. There has never been a better time to digitally preserve those memories. Visit LegacyBox.com today to get started. Plus, for a limited time, they are offering my listeners an exclusive discount. Just go to LegacyBox.com slash Ben to get 40% off that first order. Go to LegacyBox.com slash Ben. Save 40% today. Get started preserving your past. LegacyBox.com slash Ben. 40% off. Okay. So, over the weekend, there's an interesting article in the New York Times talking about President Trump's prospects for re-elections by Stephen Ratner. Ratner was a counselor to the Treasury Secretary in the Obama administration. So, suffice it to say, he is not warm toward President Trump. However, the piece is labeled President Trump's formidable 2020 tailwind. And he posits effectively that President Trump has to be the odds on favorite going into 2020. Here is what he writes. He says, economists have worked hard to develop models for predicting election outcomes. And according to one of the best of these, it should be quite large. One of the first and perhaps still the best of these models was created by Ray Fair, a professor at Yale. He found that the growth rates of gross domestic product and inflation have been the two most important economic predictors. But he also found that incumbency was also an important determinant of presidential election outcomes. So how well has this model worked in the past? Well, in 2008, it predicted that Barack Obama would receive 53.1% of the popular vote. He actually got 53.7%. In 2012, the model predicted that Obama would win 51.8%, and he ended up winning something like 52%. So it was very, very close to the real. But when it came to 2016, it was way off. President Trump, according to this model, should have received 54.1% of the vote. In actuality, he received 48.8%. Of the vote. Now, here's what Ratner says. He says, I'm quite confident that the gap was a function of the generally unfavorable rankings on Mr. Trump's personal qualities. In other words, a more normal Republican would likely have won the popular vote by a substantial margin instead of losing it by 3 million votes. They say a good part of Mr. Trump's edge in 2016 was the incumbency factor. After eight years of a Democratic president, voters ordinarily want a Republican. Since 1952, only one person has become president following eight years of a president of the same party. That would have been George H.W. Bush in 1988. In 2020, incumbency is still a tailwind for Trump because America generally doesn't like changing horses in the middle of the stream, as I've said many times for the past 50 years. Effectively, only Jimmy Carter lost a a second-term bid without a substantial third-party candidate like Ross Perot in the race, as in 1992. In its present state, the economy will be extraordinarily helpful to the president. All told, Trump's vote share would ordinarily be as high as 56.1% according to this model. That is before factoring in his personality. Recent polls show that if the election were today, he would lose to most of the Democrats by a substantial margin. In the case of Joe Biden, 
by nearly eight percentage points. Now, the FAIR model is not the only model that would normally predict a Trump win. Mark Zandi is the chief economist at Moody's Analytics. He's looked at 12 models. Trump wins in every single one of them. Donald Luskin of Trend Macrolytics has reached the same conclusion in examining the Electoral College. So with that backdrop, now we get to look at President Trump's campaign. So the fact is that if you are President Trump, <clears throat> your best hope here is basically to campaign on your achievements. He has a really good record. The fact is the economy has been extraordinarily solid under President Trump. It has continued to grow at a very, very solid rate. People are hiring. The unemployment rate is at record lows. Not only that, but he has helped to rebuild the military. He has helped rebuild the federal judiciary. He's helped deregulate. And there are a lot of great accomplishments that President Trump can point to. The big challenge for President Trump is the misperception that in 2016, he won solely because of his personality. The truth is that in 2016, Donald Trump won because Hillary Clinton was the most unlikable Democratic candidate in the history of the American Republic. Hillary Clinton was so unlikable that Donald Trump won fewer absolute votes in Wisconsin than Mitt Romney did. Romney lost the state handily to Barack Obama. Hillary Clinton lost the state of Wisconsin, while Donald Trump won fewer votes than Mitt Romney did. In fact, Democratic turnout in 2016 was less high than it had been in 2012 by a factor of about 100,000 or so. That was not because Trump did such a great job of depressing turnout for Hillary Clinton. It's because Hillary Clinton did a great job of depressing turnout for Hillary Clinton. In other words, if Republicans misread Trump's victory in 2016, as President Trump created a vast new movement, something no Republican could have done except for Trump, and he did that on the basis of his pugnacious personality, they could be in for a rude awakening. As I say, I don't think that everything that President Trump does in terms of fighting back is wrong. In fact, when I think that he is a hammer hitting a nail, I will cheer it. The problem for President Trump is that what people want in a candidate very often is not even what they want in a president. In other words, being pugnacious, being rude to people, yelling at people, right? All of this may be borderline acceptable in a presidential race. When you're the president of the United States, it's a lot less becoming because people do have a picture in their head of what they think the president is, and it looks a lot more like Morgan Freeman in every single movie than it does like Peter Sellers in Dr. Strangelove. Yeah, ranting and raving and shouting and, and looking unstable is not the way you win those suburban soccer moms who are looking for a safe, comfortable feeling when they get into the voting booth. And that brings us to, to President Trump. So President Trump has all of these inherent advantages. Unfortunately, President Trump's biggest inherent disadvantage is his inability to contain himself personally. And I don't think that this is any sort of breaking news for a lot of Republican voters. I think there are a lot of Republican voters who are so in love with the fact that Trump punches back that they are willing to overlook the fact that this actually has some pretty negative ramifications for his electoral future. And, and I understand the frustration, believe me. I really get the frustration with regard to the media. We'll get to bizarre and, and terrible media coverage in just a little while here. I fully understand the frustration that so many Republicans and conservatives have with the media. I am one of those people. And so when President Trump slaps around the media, there is something emotionally satisfying about it. When President Trump goes after Democrats the same way that Republicans feel Democrats have attacked them for years. There's something innately satisfying. There's a lot of Freud happening here with President Trump. Does that mean it's his strongest strategy for winning over the middle of the country? Does that mean it's his strongest strategy for winning over that maybe slightly right-leaning moderate woman? I, I don't think uh, that it is. And that's why you're seeing Democrats basically run a 1920 back-to-normalcy campaign. That's fascinating. Joe Biden has been completely absent from the public light. Really, completely absent. Have you seen a quote from Joe Biden lately? Have you seen Joe Biden say anything of consequence lately? He's basically just thinking to himself, if I can ride out these primaries, if I can just sit here and shut my face 
I will win the primaries. And then if I sit here and shut my face, I will win the general election. Joe Biden at least is tactically knowledgeable enough about his own flaws to know that he is a gaffe machine. And the more he talks, the more mistakes that he makes. And so what he's been doing instead is he's basically been going around giving his stump speech, saying nothing particularly controversial, trying to avoid the slings and arrows that are going to be sent his way by the media and Democrats. Donald Trump, on the other hand, embraces the chaos. He kind of likes the chaos. So President Trump over the weekend was traveling abroad and he did a press conference in which he attacked Joe Biden. And here is what he had to say about Joe Biden. He used Kim Jong-un, the dictator of North Korea and perhaps the worst person on planet Earth, as an example of somebody who thinks that Joe Biden is an insufficient leader. Kim Jong-un made a statement that Joe Biden is a low IQ individual. He probably is, based on his record. Uh, I think I agree with him on that. Okay. Mr. President, if you wish to project stability, if you don't wish to project defensiveness, what you don't really want to do is something as immoral as citing the world's worst human being to say that your political opponent is a stupid human. I mean, that, that is bad stuff. And then Trump doubled down on it. So he tweeted out, North Korea fired off some small weapons, which disturbed some of my people and others, but not me. I have confidence that Chairman Kim will keep his promise to me and also smiled when he called Swampman Joe Biden a low IQ individual and worse. Perhaps that's sending me a signal. So what, what is the signal? I'm like, I don't even understand the syntax of the sentence to begin with. He says he has confidence that Chairman Kim will keep his promise to me. That, that confidence is wildly misplaced. Kim Jong-un is not keeping promises because that's not what the North Korean regime does. They're a slave state that keeps a million people in gulags. And then he says, I smiled when he called Swampman Joe Biden a low IQ individual and worse. Perhaps that's sending me a signal. What, in the, what is that even supposed to mean? So the original version of this tweet, it is worth noting, misspelled Joe Biden's name in calling him a low IQ individual. He spelled it B-I-D-A-N. Not a good, not a good thing. Also, when, like, why are you smiling along as the, as a foreign leader calls the president, uh, calls the president's chief rival a stupid person? Why is that a good thing? Why, I, I, honestly, I do not understand this. We're not talking about like a friendly conversation between allies. We're talking about the worst state on planet Earth. Why Trump would be citing Kim Jong-un as an authority on Joe Biden's IQ is absolutely beyond me. Can you imagine if Barack Obama had said to the, besides pandering to the Iranians, which he actually did, can you imagine if he had said, I just met with the mullahs and the mullahs said that Mitt Romney is a stupid person and I agree with them? Can you imagine? It would have been insane and ridiculous. Now, here is where the, the sort of, here's where the partisanship and the, and the need, the schadenfreude creeps in. Republicans also look at President Trump's comments and they say, so the same Democrats who have basically said that Trump is as bad as Kim Jong-un, who when he had this, this online spat with Kim Jong-un, were saying that Kim Jong-un might be more sane than President Trump, are now upset that Trump is quoting President, uh, that, that President Trump is quoting Kim Jong-un to attack Joe Biden. And there's something to that. I'll get to that in just one second. First, I gotta tell you, my Helix Sleep Mattress is just fantastic. It really is good. My Helix Sleep Mattress is so good that I cannot wait to get back on it. That was a great weekend and I cannot wait to go home and sleep again. That's where Helix Sleep comes in. They've got a quiz that take just, it takes just two minutes to complete. They match your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. 
Whether you're a side sleeper, a hot sleeper, whether you like a plush or a firm bed, with Helix, there's no more confusion and no more compromising. Helix Sleep is rated the number one mattress by GQ and Wired Magazine. CNN has called it the most comfortable mattress they've ever slept on. Now, normally I don't believe CNN, but I've slept on the mattress myself, so I know it's really good. Just go to helixsleep.com Ben. Take their two-minute sleep quiz. They will match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. For couples, Helix can even split that mattress down the middle, providing individual support needs and feel preferences for each side. They have a 10-year warranty. You get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. They'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it, but you will. Helix is offering up to 125 bucks off all mattress orders for our listeners. Get up to 125 bucks off at helixsleep.com slash Ben. That's helixsleep.com slash Ben for up to $125 off that mattress order. Helixsleep.com slash Ben. Go check them out right now. So again, we're talking about President Trump citing Kim Jong-un to attack Joe Biden. And he, he kept, again, tweeting about this stuff over and over again. It's, it's just, it, it's not smart. But I understand, so I understand, it's not just smart, it's immoral. Okay, you don't, you don't tweet out or talk about the wondrous genius of people who are shooting their relatives with anti-aircraft guns to maintain their own power. That, that, that is really, really dumb. And not just dumb, immoral and wrong. I understand Republicans who are looking around going, okay, and the Democrats just spent two years suggesting that Donald Trump is a Russian's cat's paw and that Donald Trump is a traitor to the United States. So everything's fair in love and war. Everything may be fair in love and war. That doesn't mean that it is right in love and war. And more than that, when it comes to President Trump's re-election prospects, just as a matter of strategy, I don't see how this helps President Trump in any way. How does it help that you have to have Sarah Huckabee Sanders, your press secretary, out there in public having to assess on Meet the Press whether the president ought to cite Kim Jong-un in his assessment of Joe Biden? The president doesn't need somebody else to give him uh, an assessment of Joe Biden. He's given his own assessment a number of times. I think you've seen it. I'm sure you've covered it on your program. Uh, the president watched him and his uh, administration with President Obama fail for eight years. He's come in in two and a half. He's cleaned up a lot of the messes that were left behind. We shouldn't even be in the position that we're in to have to deal with North Korea at the level we are if they had done their job in the first place. I think if anybody needs help with an assessment, it's Joe Biden and whether or not he should be trying to get an upgrade when he failed to do the job in the number two slot. Okay, all of that is a fine case. Also, quoting the world's worst dictator to criticize Joe Biden is a bad move. And then Trump goes further. He is trying to edge around Biden in order to, I won't say goes further. He, he also goes in a different direction with his criticism of Joe Biden. It's impossible to go further once you've quoted the world's worst man on your political opponent. But then he decides to go after Joe Biden from the left. Now, this is one of the things that's interesting about Trump as a candidate is that Trump is not a traditional conservative candidate. There are certain areas of his record where he actually is closer to the left than to the right. One of those areas is on the, is on the crime reform bill that he put forward, the criminal justice reform that he put forward that lowered some sentences, made it easier for criminals to be released. I oppose the bill. I think the bill is a bad idea. But Trump is using that bill as a club to wield against Joe Biden, suggesting that Joe Biden is too harsh on crime. Obviously, this is Trump's play for minority votes. And he basically says this. I mean, he says that openly. So this is not me assuming his motives. He says, anyone associated with the 1994 crime bill will not have a chance of being reelected. In particular, African-Americans will not be able to vote for you. I, on the other hand, was responsible for criminal justice reform, which had tremendous support and helped fix the bad 1994 bill. Super predator, he says, was the term associated with the 1994 crime bill that sleepy Joe Biden was so heavily involved in passing. That was a dark period in American history. But has sleepy Joe apologized? No. So this is an election gambit by the president. Is that going to win over those, again, soccer moms, the security moms, the, the married women in suburbia? 
Is this, is this pitch going to be, I let more criminals out of prison and that was criminal justice reform? Is that, is that a strong pitch with that particular crowd? So I will say, I don't think that the president is, is a friend to his own strategy on a strategic level, aside from the obvious immorality of citing Kim Jong-un to attack Joe Biden. I don't want Joe Biden to be president of the United States. I think Joe Biden stinks, but I don't think that that is an excuse for the president of the United States to do what he's doing. And you can see how this plays out among the Democrats. So now we move to the Democratic side of the aisle. And what's pretty incredible is how unavailing a lot of their attacks on President Trump are. When they attack President Trump on policy, they fail. When they attack President Trump on personality, they have a little bit more to work with. And you can see this from the angle that they are taking. So to take an example, Beto O'Rourke has suggested that President Trump is moving us toward war with Iran. This is obviously untrue. President Trump does not want war with Iran. He is not interested in war with Iran as Beto. Uh, he, the, the idea that he is desperate for war with Iran, there is no evidence to suggest that. You know, the fact that, that, the, the fact that Beto O'Rourke is, is pushing that story, it's, it's a bad strategy and it's not going to work. So here's Beto O'Rourke trying this. Most Americans don't believe this because it's obviously factually false. If President Trump wanted to go to war with Iran, he would be getting a lot more militants a lot more quickly. Here's Beto failing to, to explain why, the, why President Trump's some sort of warmonger. Do you think President Trump was right to send these 1,500 troops to the Middle East to counter the Iran threat? No. Um, President Trump is escalating tensions, is provoking yet another war in the Middle East, where we find ourselves already engaged in war in so many countries, in Iraq, in Syria, in Yemen, not too far from there in Libya and in Afghanistan. So we don't need another war. We need to find a way to work with allies and partners, and in some cases with our enemies. Okay, so again, nobody believes this. Tulsi Gabbard tried the same thing. She's another flailing Democratic candidate. She also says that Trump is moving toward war with Iran. Now, this stuff is unavailing. It's not going to touch President Trump in the polls because most Americans don't believe this stuff. It's obvious that Trump is not interested in some sort of massive conflict with Iran at this point. In fact, he's done a better job of containing Iran's regional ambitions, certainly than the Obama administration has. When Obama left, that place was on fire. And when, that pl- when, when Obama left, Iran was, was on the move in Iraq, in Syria, in Lebanon, in Yemen. They've been, they were funding Hamas and Hezbollah. Now they've basically been stymied. So the idea that Trump is trying to push to war with Iran is just not true. Here's Tulsi Gabbard trying to make the case and failing. We're unfortunately uh, and very concerningly on the brink of war with Iran. These escalating tensions have brought us here. I'm very familiar with the region, the cost of war, and where this path leads us. And the American people need to understand how devastating and costly such a war would be, how it would impact almost every part of our lives. Okay, so uh, again, this is a fail. It's a fail. So when Democrats attack Trump on policy, attack Trump on policy, it is a fail. And when they stretch beyond the boundaries of what Trump has supposedly done, it's also a fail. So Amy Klobuchar was trying to claim that President Trump had been involved in a misinformation campaign against Nancy Pelosi by tweeting out a video that was basically just a montage of Nancy Pelosi stumbling over her words. The media lied and they claimed that that was a doctored video. That's not a doctored video. That's called a montage. It has been a feature of every political campaign I can remember. Here's Amy Klobuchar, though, claiming that President Trump was engaged in some sort of nefarious electioneering. He was not. And that's why this is a fail. 
I don't think we would expect the president of the United States to be sending out a video uh, that is doctored, but we've seen this. It's a concerted effort. There's several videos out there, two of them that I know of, of Speaker Pelosi uh, slowing down her words, trying to make her look in some inebriated state. Um, it is unbelievable to me uh, that the president would be involved in this kind of disinformation campaign. But Trump didn't do that. Trump didn't actually tweet out that video. She's talking about a video that was tweeted out by other people, including Rudy Giuliani. Trump himself did not tweet out that video. And there was Hillary Clinton, who's out there doing the same thing. Trump has been spreading sexist trash, blah, 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 blah. The school marming of parts of Trump that are not school marmable is a very bad strategy, as Hillary should have learned from 2016. But she's not going to stop doing it because she's going to keep running that campaign until basically the end of time. The president and his cronies have been running around spreading a doctored video of Nancy Pelosi. Now, it is sexist trash, but it is also a sign that Trump is running scared. Oh, is that what it is? Okay, so all of this is, is not going to have any impact. Now, what will have an impact is character attacks on Trump that seem to hit home. So, for example, Pete Buttigieg, who, again, I think is just in pure IQ terms, the smartest of the Democratic candidates in the race right now, Buttigieg attacked Trump over the Kim Jong-un comments. And this, I think, does carry more weight than what all these other folks were saying. Kim Jong-un is a murderous dictator, and uh, the Vice President Biden serves this country honorably. It's just one more example, though, of the way that uh, this president tries to draw attention to himself by uh, saying things that shock the conscience uh, to distract us from his deep unpopularity and the deep unpopularity of the Republican governing agenda. Okay, so that last part is the lie, right? The last part that, that the Republican governing agenda is deeply unpopular is simply not true. I haven't seen a lot of polling data suggesting that the tax cuts for people who actually understand what they are is deeply unpopular. A lot of this has been media misinformation. You know, when, when Buttigieg goes after Trump on the basis that he is being immoral, that has a little more weight than when Democrats go after Trump for tax cuts or go after him for Iran, which is why Trump should stick to tax cuts and Middle Eastern policy and all of the things his administration has done right. It is a large scale mistake by the president of the United States to bank on his personality winning him the presidency when it probably cut against him in the last election cycle in pretty heavy ways. Now, with that said, Trump is facing one headwind, and that is the headwind of the media, which continues to just be awful at its job. Is, is Trump said something bad enough that it didn't need any fabrication. A Time columnist actually fabricated a quote from President Trump about Kim Jong-un. He actually fabricated this quote and put it out on Twitter. His name is Ian Bremmer, and he writes for Time. And he tweeted out this quote. Uh, the, the quote was, let's see, the quote was, well, first, for, that's his apology. But his original, his original quote was something like the president of the United States had said that Kim Jong-un would make a better president. Than, it, here it is. Pre Kim Jong-un is smarter and would make a better president than sleepy Joe Biden. Right, so Bremer tweeted that out as though that was a real quote, just without any sort of context. And it started making the rounds around the internet. He then had to come out and apologize for doing that because he failed to provide any context or to say the thing was a tweet in the first place. And it was not obviously, it was not obviously a joke. And the, President Trump does have to run against a malicious media. Another example, Michael Wolff, who is a smear merchant, who was featured all over the media for the last couple of years after his book, Fire and Fury, he reported that special counsel Robert Mueller had drawn up a three-count obstruction of justice indictment against Trump before deciding to shelve it. 
And then Robert Mueller came out and he just denied it. He said, this is not true. Like bar none, it is not true. It doesn't matter. The headline had already made the news. So I understand the uphill battle Trump is facing. I understand how annoying it is to be attacked by the media for no good reason. With that said, not smart. Okay, in a second, we're going to get to the EU elections and the ramifications of the EU elections for kind of global politics. First, there's a widely held belief that procrastination is a bad thing. But life isn't necessarily so black and white. Sometimes procrastination can work in your favor. For example, if you need life insurance, but you've been putting it off, congratulations, you just lucked into something good. You've procrastinated long enough for technology to make it easy for you. Policy Genius is the easy way to shop for insurance online. In just two minutes, you can compare quotes from top insurers and find your best price. Once you apply, the Policy Genius team will handle all the paperwork and the red tape. No sales pressure, no hidden fees, just financial protection and peace of mind. And Policy Genius doesn't just make life insurance easy. They can also help you find the right home insurance, auto insurance, disability insurance. So if you need life insurance, but you've been busy doing literally anything else, check out Policy Genius right now. It is the easy way to compare all the top insurers and find the best value for you. PolicyGenius.com. Nobody wants to shop for life insurance, and that's why Policy Genius has made it easy. Go check them out at PolicyGenius.com. That is PolicyGenius.com. Be a responsible human being. You're an adult. This means it's time to take care of your family. It's time to think just briefly about what happens if something should happen to you. That's why you need to go check out PolicyGenius.com right now. That's PolicyGenius.com. Okay, so yesterday featured a, a really fascinating election in the EU, and now there's a basic split in the EU between people who like the EU and people who want to end the EU. And this is largely a result of regulatory capture at the, at the level of Brussels. Basically, the EU has now aggregated such enormous power over the various members of the EU states that a lot of the populations are looking around going, we didn't elect these people. And people from France are looking around going, we didn't elect these folks. People from Britain looking around saying, we, didn't, we elected our people to be in the EU parliament, but we did not elect this parliament on a broad level. We never agreed that we were going to give up our national sovereignty to a bunch of unelected bureaucrats at the EU level. And so this has led to a serious split inside the EU parliament. And you've seen that reflected in Brexit in Britain, which has now brought down at least two prime ministers. According to the Associated Press, France's pro-EU president and the leader of Italy's Eurosceptic far-right movement jockeyed for the role of chief power broker on the continent Monday after elections to the European Parliament hollowed out the traditional political middle. The four days of balloting that drew to a close on Sunday across the European Union's 28 countries ended the nomination of the main center-right and center-left parties in Parliament and established the anti-EU forces on the right and the environmentalists on the left as forces to be reckoned with. So everything is polarizing. The center could not hold because the center was based on certain fundamental lying premises. Those premises were that free and open immigration into the EU was somehow going to make the EU stronger. The idea that regulation at the EU level was somehow going to solidify the EU as opposed to polarizing the EU. See, what the founders of America knew when they drew up the Federalist Paper is that there had to be a, there had to be a balance between the strength of the federal government and its ability to fight wars or set national tariffs and also, there had to be internal solidarity so that you couldn't have tariffs from state to state. But also, the states had to be left with the vast majority of the power to do their own governing. The EU has failed in that object. And one of the reasons, by the way, you're seeing in internal conflict in the United States right now is because the federal government has become too powerful. One of the reasons that every local issue becomes a national issue in the United States is specifically because the federal government has its finger in too many pies, because unelected bureaucrats have their fingers in too many pies. Well, the same thing has basically happened at the EU level. The EU is an imitation not of the original American founding bargain, but it's more like the it's now more looking like the American government, unfortunately. And the American government has shifted dramatically away from state power and toward federal power over the course of the last century and a half. 
for some good reasons and also for some bad reasons. The good reasons being racial issues, the bad reasons being economic usurpation on the part of the federal government. Well, in Europe, imagine the issues that the United States has in terms of state loyalty, except multiplied to the extreme. At least people from South Carolina have a long history of considering themselves American. People from Italy don't necessarily have a long history of considering themselves part of the same body politic as people from France or people from Germany. Voters delivered the highest turnout in 20 years. They've rejected mainstream politics in France, Germany, Britain, and Italy, which is amazing. The results could make the business of governing Europe even trickier, leaving the parliament deadlocked over key issues to come, including immigration, a major trade agreement with the United States, global warming, regulation of the tech industry, and of course, Brexit. The traditional centrist leaders of Europe have just lost an enormous number of seats. The EPP, the group of the European People's Party, Christian Democrats, they lost 39 seats. The Group of Progressive Alliance of Socialists and Democrats in the European Parliament lost 36 seats. Those are both sort of, that's a center-right party and a center-left party. The Group of Alliance of Liberals and Democrats for Europe, they've gained 38 seats. The Greens gained 17 seats. It's, it's fascinating. I mean, basically, European politics is being pulled apart. In France, President Emmanuel Macron's party narrowly lost to the French far right, led by Marine Le Pen, which suggests, again, that the people of France may want Macron as their president, but they don't necessarily want Macron's perspective on internationalism governing internationally. Macron, his party was poised to secure 21 seats to 22 for Le Pen's national rally. In Italy, Matteo Salvini's right-wing league party won a third of the country's vote. They're poised to become one of the biggest parties in the European Parliament. They have 28 seats in the 751-seat legislature. By midday, Salvini had already spoken to Le Pen, as well as Hungary's hardline anti-immigrant Prime Minister Viktor Orban and Brexit leader Nigel Farage, and was promising to single-handedly bring together a contradiction in terms, an international group of nationalists. Well, that's AP coverage for you. No, you can, in fact, have an international group of nationalists if they have a shared interest in devolving power back to the countries at issue. He says, we want to be a group that has at least 100 members and has the ambition to be at least 150. If everyone can overcome jealousies, sympathies, antipathies, to create an alternative, you play. You don't do it by turning up your nose. The center-right European People's Party and the center-left socialists and Democrats have dominated the parliament with a combined majority since direct elections were first held in 1979. Both parties got swamped. Environmentalist parties seeking action on climate change made strong gains in Germany. Another mainstream formation, the free market ALDE group backed by Macron, saw its stake rise to 109 seats from 68 in 2014. The parliament is going to have a Tough time picking European Commission president. The single largest party is, in fact, the Brexit party, I believe, uh, in terms of how many, how many seats are held, certainly in Britain. Uh, there is no question that the Brexit party has been incredibly successful. The fact that, that 50% of the EU's more than 400 million voters cast ballots and that they cast ballots mainly against that middle, against that sort of internationalist middle, suggests that people are really fighting back against two particular issues inside the EU. One is that overregulation from the center, and two is the immigration policy that has been pursued by people like Angela Merkel, which has been a giant fail. Pope Francis is getting upset about this. He warned on Monday against the rise of intolerance and racism as far-right nationalists and Euroskeptic parties made historic gains in European elections. He said, the signs of meanness we see around us heighten our fear of the other, the unknown, the marginalized, the foreigner. It's not just about them, but about all of us and about the present and future of the human family said, migrants, especially those who are most vulnerable, help us to read the signs of the times. He said, it's interesting, he said, to some extent, the fear is legitimate, also because the preparation for this counter is lacking. 
He said, the problem is not that we have doubts and fears. The problem is when they condition our way of thinking and acting to the point of making us intolerant, closed, and perhaps even without realizing it, racist. Okay, well, nobody, I, well, I won't say nobody. I don't think that, that the Eurosceptics are doing this on the basis of racism. I think they are doing this on the basis of Europe cannot continue to accept millions of immigrants from places that do not share any sort of Western civilized values without any sort of assimilative process. Multiculturalism in Europe has failed. That's not my statement. That's a statement of Angela Merkel, of David Cameron, the former prime minister of Great Britain. And it's failure. The failure of this multicultural ethos in Europe is creating serious issues in, in large part, not just for the not just for kind of the, the historic French, but also for Jews, for example, in Europe. We'll get to that in just one second. First, Running a small business, it's a lot of work. It takes time, it takes money. You want all the time and money you have to go toward growing your business. But what happens when legal hurdles pop up along the way? LegalZoom is there to help. Nearly two million Americans have used LegalZoom to start their businesses with LLCs and corporation and more. Even after your business is set up, LegalZoom can still help you out. Things like lease agreements, changing tax laws, contract reviews, all of these are part of running your own business. These are precisely the kinds of costly hurdles that can take time away from growing your business. That's why LegalZoom created their business legal plan. Get advice for running your business from vetted independent attorneys and tax professionals available in all 50 states. The best part, you won't get charged by the hour because LegalZoom is not, in fact, a law firm. Make your time and money work for you. Check out LegalZoom's business legal plan at LegalZoom.com right now. Get special savings when you enter Ben at checkout. That's LegalZoom, where life meets legal. LegalZoom.com. As a lawyer myself, I have been using LegalZoom for years, and it is indeed great. It saves me tons of time and saves me tons of money. If you're looking for business formation or you're just looking for business legal advice, check out LegalZoom's business legal plan at LegalZoom.com right now. Get special savings when you enter Ben at checkout. Okay, so we're going to get to the fallout from the European elections and where all of this is coming from in just a second. First, you have to go subscribe over at DailyWire.com. For $9.99 a month, you can get a subscription to DailyWire.com. When you do, you get the rest of this show live. Two additional hours of the show every single day. And we are working hard for you so you can have all that extra content. You can be part of our mailbag when we have a Daily Wire backstage, as we do indeed have a backstage this evening. When you have a Daily Wire backstage and you have a piece of mail you want to send to us, we will only read it if you are a subscriber. $9.99 a month makes that happen for you. Plus this, the very greatest in beverage vessels. Ah, view it, cast your eyes upon it, and be happy. That's what it does for, for me anyway. It's fantastic. Go check it out right now. $99 a year, cheaper than the monthly subscription. Also, when you subscribe, it helps protect us from the vicissitudes of the, of the nasty left, which seeks to target the show on a regular basis. When you become a subscriber, you become part of the team, and we always appreciate it. Go check us out over there. We continue to grow at incredibly rapid rates. We have a, if, if you're looking for a job, dailywire.com slash careers. We are offering jobs right now as well. Also, make sure that you check us out at YouTube and iTunes. When you do, leave us a review. It always helps. We are the largest, fastest-growing conservative podcast and radio show in the nation. One of the uncomfortable facts here is that the rise of immigration into Europe, mainly from Muslim countries in the Middle East, many of which do not have Western values in mind, I mean, it's hard to suggest that, that folks coming from Syria are fully in tune with Western values, or that folks coming from Libya are fully in tune with Western values without any level of assimilation. That's, not, that's just not the culture in Libya and Syria to this point. And again, that's not a rip on Islam. That is just a suggestion that there are serious cultural differences between Libya and Syria and France. And those cultural differences can be felt everywhere in Europe, and that is what is causing this huge backlash in large part. Again, as I say, not a rip on Islam. There was a time when Islam was perhaps the most forward-thinking religion from like 700 to 1300, for example, when they were preserving all of, the, all of the Greek philosophers. But to suggest that Islam today 
is producing citizens from Libya and Syria who are just ready to get on the on the female rights, gay rights bandwagon in France, I think is a bit of a mistake. That is obviously not borne out by any of the polling data. That has some pretty significant impacts in Europe. One of those impacts is not just the fracturing of the body politic in Europe, but the targeting of other minorities. Germany's government commissioner on anti-Semitism over the weekend warned Jews in Germany about the potential dangers of wearing the kippah, which is what I wear, in the face of rising anti-Jewish attacks. Felix Klein, he said, I cannot advise Jews to wear the kippah everywhere all the time in Germany. He said he has changed his mind on the subject compared to previously. He cited the lifting of inhibitions and the uncouthness which is on the rise in society. He says the internet and social media have largely contributed to this, but so have constant attacks against our culture of remembrance. The anti-Semitism in Europe is coming from a couple of different sources. In Germany, they, they try to attribute the vast majority of it to the extreme right. Studies tend to suggest that it is not nearly all from the extreme right in Europe, that a huge portion of anti-Semitic attacks in Europe are actually coming from new Muslim immigrants. Uh, the, the fact that the extreme right in Europe, which has always been anti-Semitic, continues to be anti-Semitic, is not a particular shocker. But it is obvious that the Jews in Europe are feeling the threat, which is why Jews in Europe are basically leaving. I mean, Jews are abandoning Europe. Every, every few months, there's an article about can Jews continue to live in Europe. It's amazing. The New York Times editorial board disclaims any responsibility whatsoever for the rise in anti-Semitism in Europe from the left. They say the worrisome trend was underscored by a report issued by the German government this month showing that anti-Semitic incidents in Germany had increased by almost 20% in 2018 from the previous year with 69 acts classified as violence. There are 1,799 reports of anti-Semitic attacks or incidents. The most common offense was the use of the swastika and other illegal symbols. The rest ranged from online incitement and insults to arson, assault, and murder. Of the total, the report attributed 89% of the incidents to the far right, which, by the way, is disgusting, right? I mean, the far right in Germany, as, as with the white supremacist far right in the United States, is disgusting and evil. Germany, like many other European nations, has seen a resurgence of the neo-fascist right. Much of the recent reporting in Germany on the rise of anti-Semitism has focused on hostility to Jews among Muslim migrants. And here's where the New York Times goes off the rails. This part is true. There are surveys in Europe, and what they suggest is that by plurality, the leading perpetrators of anti-Semitic attacks are in fact Muslim. Okay, there was, a, there was a, a report last year from the European Union Agency for Fundamental Rights. They launched their second survey on anti-Semitism. They surveyed some 16,500 individuals across 12 member states. This is according to Tablet. And the findings found that European anti-Semitism is predominantly Muslim in origin, followed in close second by the left-wing variety. According to respondents who experienced some form of anti-Semitic harassment in the past five years, 30% of the perpetrators were Muslim, 21% were people espousing a left-wing view, only 13% expressed a right-wing view. That same survey found that a third of respondents have considered emigrating from Europe because they no longer feel safe there as Jews. So the New York Times obviously is going to focus in on the German government study that suggests that all of this violence is coming from the radical right, when in reality, a huge percentage of it is coming from Muslims and it's coming from the far left as well. That is not to discount the evil of the far right. That is to point out that if you are a Jew living in Europe, and I know many Jews who are living in Europe, when they talk about the chief threat to their lives, what they are talking about is generally not the European far right, just on a statistical basis. And anecdotal and statistical based on that particular study. Now, where does the New York Times go with this? This is so telling. Where the New York Times goes with this is they then blame Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. I am not kidding you. They blame the Prime Minister of Israel. So the newspaper that is, that is complaining about anti-Semitism in Europe is blaming the only Jewish state for the creation of anti-Semitism 
in Europe. Michael Oren, the former foreign minister for Israel, he says, all the hypocrisy that fits. The New York Times editorial on rising anti-Semitism cites Benjamin Netanyahu as a source, but amidst Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, and incredibly, the New York Times and its Nazi cartoon, and endless articles vilifying the one Jewish state and its supporters, laughable if not so tragic. And this is true, by the way. Even the right-wing anti-Semitism in Europe is being driven in large part by a media that criticizes Israel endlessly and then allows the far right to identify anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism and then allows to cover up anti-Semitism with anti-Zionism. That's why you ended up with that German court ruling a couple of years ago in which two, I believe it was two Muslims, burned down a a shul, they burned down a synagogue and then claimed that they were doing it out of anti-Zionist sentiment, not anti-Semitic sentiment, and the court ruled with them. The fact that the New York Times is refusing to acknowledge the source of anti-Semitism is pretty astonishing, but all too telling, unfortunately. The New York Times says that anti-Semitism in in Europe is basically the result of Donald Trump and Benjamin Netanyahu, which is incredible. That is failing to understand the fracturing forces in Europe right now, one of which is immigration. And failing to understand those forces means that the fracturing gets worse. So as long as this kind of center coalition in Europe and in the United States, continues to pretend that open immigration without any sort of, of assimilation or, or any sort of, of, cultural, uh, of cultural movement is, going to, is not going to fracture people, they're, they're going to keep losing. They're going to keep losing. They're refusing to acknowledge a reality that is there on the ground. Okay, meanwhile, my weekend was changed for the worse when BuzzFeed decided they were going to report on an incredibly stupid story. So here's the incredibly stupid story. The incredibly stupid story is there is an Indiana piece of human debris, uh, and he is a, a neo-Nazi who is 21, and he went to an Indiana shul, and then he defaced a synagogue with Nazi symbolism. Now, according to BuzzFeed News, this is my fault. I am not kidding you. This is what BuzzFeed News suggested. Yes, if there's one thing that I, an Orthodox Jew who has fought anti-Semitism with every fiber of my being for my entire life, is there one thing that I, an Orthodox Jew, who has been the target of the alt-right and the stormfront people, if there's one thing I'm known for, it is, it is encouraging people to attack synagogues. That, that's totally my thing. Totally my, so BuzzFeed News originally tweeted out, a man who vandalized a synagogue with Nazi symbols told federal agents his road to radicalization include meeting with the far-right group Identity Europa and reading Ben Shapiro, Breitbart News, and the Nazi propaganda site Stormfront. So they then had to change their tweet because it turns out this wasn't true. It turns out that he never actually told federal, federal prosecutors that his road to radicalization included reading me. It turns out that his lawyers, after the trial, tried to claim in mitigating effect that his wife convinced him to be a white supremacist and that his wife had read me and Breitbart News and then Stormfront. So a couple of things to point out here. One, if you read me and you somehow come away with, I need to attack a synagogue, I'm going to suggest that either you are, mis- you are misunderstanding my writings in fairly dramatic fashion or that you don't really like my writings very much. Number two, are we really going to play this game? And it's not just, the, it's not just BuzzFeed. It's the Washington Post ran a piece today. It is their most read national piece. It says a Nazi sympathizer pled guilty to defacing a synagogue. His lawyer says conservatives helped radicalize him. Okay, and here is what the Washington Post reports. I'm not going to mention this guy's name because I don't mention the name of shooters or terrorists. He has found his way to the national spotlight since the ruling, not because of discourse over the length of his sentence, but because of a name that his lawyer mentioned in his sentencing memo. Conservative commentator and Daily Wire editor-in-chief Ben Shapiro 
The lawyer argued that his radicalization was heavily influenced by what his wife, who was 17 at the time of the crime, had been reading online. According to this white supremacist, she began with right-wing yet mainstream views such as those presented on Fox News. She then moved on to writings by Ben Shapiro and articles on Breitbart News, which bridged the gap to the notorious white supremacist and anti-Semitic propaganda site Stormfront. Okay, you know what horse crap that is? You know what desperate maneuvering that is by the lawyer? To take that at face value, that you read me and then you went directly to Stormfront? Okay, I'm aware of the crap Stormfront pushes. Stormfront is one of the most evil publications on the internet. And you know who they have a particular hatred for? The guy in the yarmulke. He's got two thumbs and is giving thumbs up right now. That'd be me. Okay, that, that's the person that stormed from on their top 10 list of people they hate. I am on that list. Three weeks ago, the FBI arrested a white supremacist for threatening me and my family. Yes, clearly, I'm a white su- but so, so the Washington Post is running with the story anyway. And here's what the Washington Post says about me to try and link me to white supremacist attacks on synagogues. Shapiro is a leading conservative voice among millennials, a Harvard Law graduate with millions of social media followers. Let let me point out something real fast right here. It is important to note here that no one in the media talked about Bernie Sanders being responsible for the congressional baseball shooting because he was not responsible for the congressional baseball shooting. It turns out that if you have millions and millions and millions of followers, as thank God we do, if you have 5 million followers on Facebook and 2.2 million followers on Twitter, if you have like a million followers on Instagram, and millions of people who listen to your show every single day, it turns out one of them may be a nut. Wow. Breaking news. And this obviously is meritorious of, of print in the Washington Post. But then the Washington Post does this. They actually try to make the philosophical case that I am somehow the, the logical link between conservatism and white supremacism. They say he has criticized President Trump but upholds many of the same views as the conservatives who support the president do, including outlawing abortion, repealing the Affordable Care Act, and cutting taxes for the wealthy. He previously worked for Breitbart News. This case is not the first time that Shapiro's name has been cited by those accused of hate-motivated crimes. In the month before Alexander Bissonnette attacked a Quebec City mosque in 2017, he visited Shapiro's Twitter feed 93 times, according to evidence presented at Bissonnette's sentencing hearing. You know who else's Twitter feed he visited? Tucker Carlson, Laura Ingram, CNN. He visited, like, pretty much everybody, Fox News, If the idea is that I tweet a lot and people follow me on Twitter, guilty. So where exactly do they go with this? Here is their claim. You ready for this? Here is their claim that I am responsible for a a defacing of of a shul in Indiana and the shooting at a mosque in Quebec last year. Shapiro has previously claimed that the majority of Muslims are radicalized, a false assertion citing Matt that was later debunked by Pundit Fact, a fact checking publication run by Pointer. So this is their key line. The key line is that I did a video that in which I talk about polling data of Muslims. And this is correct. There is a video that I did in which I explicitly say this is not an attack on Islam because I don't try to talk about Islam. I don't try to talk about the philosophy of Islam. In fact, I don't even think that Islam has to be incompatible with Western values. I think there are a lot of American Muslims who believe in American values and are also Muslim. I was against the originally proposed Muslim ban for precisely this reason. The video that I cut, which cited Pew poll statistics on questions as to how many Muslims in Afghanistan supported honor killings, how many Muslims supported the implementation of Sharia law. Those were Pew global poll statistics. That's all that video is. You can go watch it. Somehow, if I cite a poll stat, this is now in a, 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 an urge to murder or, or to face a synagogue? That's a, you, really, that's how you're getting from here to there? By the way, is there any evidence that these people even watched that video? I mean, this is insanity. I, I do love that the Washington Post cites this ridiculous PolitiFact fact check on that video 
that, that quote unquote debunked me, uh, that, that, that fact check from PolitiFact is not even close to debunk me. It does not come close to debunking that video. Why? Because the video is not debunkable. It's just a citation of poll statistics. Here's what that PolitiFact rating, they rated that claim that a majority of Muslims may be radicalized. They rated that claim false. Why? Quote, Shapiro chose one yardstick. Other analysts could, with at least as much justification, choose another. So in other words, I chose a yardstick. They don't like the yardstick I chose, namely the poll data that I chose. And so they picked other poll data. That is not a debunking. And, that, and, and even if it were a debunking, which it is not, how exactly you link a claim that there are a lot of radicalized Muslims on planet Earth to a claim that somebody should go shoot up a random mosque is insane. That's insane. But here's what's really going on here for the media. What's really going on here for a lot of members of the media, from BuzzFeed to the Washington Post, is they don't like the fact that the show has become, thank God, very successful. They don't like the fact that conservatives overall have a lot of appeal to people. And so what they are trying to do is label them racist and bigoted. And then they are trying to suggest that their words are incitement to violence when they are obviously not. They've done the same thing to Jordan Peterson. They've done the same thing to Sam Harris, who is not even conservative. This is vile. It's disgusting. The same people who will defend Ilhan Omar, who is using openly anti-Semitic language, or Rashida Tlaib using openly anti-Semitic language, will suggest that if I cite Pew Global Poll statistics, that I am responsible then for the defacing of a synagogue in Indiana. That's badly motivated crap right there. And it is obviously badly motivated crap. And it's an attempt to silence debate. It's an attempt to quash debate. And the media are engaged in it on a full-scale level. They are ready to do this on a full-scale level. If this is the game that they want to play, where anybody who does something bad, if they cite anyone, anyone, without any real connection to that person's idea, that person is guilty, this is going to become a very ugly business very quickly. Because it turns out that there are a lot, uh, there are a lot of bad people who cite a lot of not bad people as motivation for their acts. This is pretty disgusting stuff by BuzzFeed to report on this. It's disgusting of the Washington Post to report on this as though it is real. It's, it's pretty absurd. Okay, time for some things I like and then some things that I hate. So things that I like today. So over the weekend, got a chance to watch John Wick 3, which I was promoting last week as though I'd been paid to do it. Uh, John Wick 1 and 2 are pretty terrific. John Wick 3 has some of the best action scenes in, in history. Is it better than Citizen Kane? I'm not gonna say yes. But you might. John Wick 3, here's a little bit of the preview. You have no idea what's coming. Mr. Wick broke the rules. I trust you understand the repercussions if he survives. John Wick, excommunicado, is now in effect. You shouldn't be here. Nice Good to see you too. So uh, the movie is so, it's purely dumb and purely wonderful. It's got some of the, uh, there are a couple action scenes that are just terrific. Most of them, the best action scenes actually happen near the beginning of, of the film. Uh, there's the, the very kind of already ubiquitous image of Keanu Reed riding a horse through the streets of New York. <laughs> it's great. It's just, it's just great. So go check out John Wick 3. It's a lot of fun. It is very, very bloody, obviously. It's got some gasp moments in terms of uh, treatment of the human body, shall we say. Um, but it is, it's got some great action scenes. I do like the underground theory that's going around online right now about John Wick 3, which is that John Wick 3 is actually the virtual reality in which the Matrix exists. So it is the Matrix because Lawrence Fishburne is also in this. So it's Lawrence Fishburne and John Wick. And there's a scene in a hotel in dim lighting in which Keanu Reeves takes on an army. 
So I, I do like that fan theory. Okay, time for some things that I hate. Okay, thing that I hate number one today. One thing that I definitely like is people on the left who are fine with anti-Semitism suddenly declaring that they're anti-anti-Semitism. So AOC is one of these people. Uh, the ubiquitous Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, brilliant, fresh, very face. Uh, she who has sided with Linda Sarsour and who has sided with, with Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib and Jeremy Corbyn. She's very upset because there's a political article that had a picture of Bernie Sanders with his three houses. And the headline was, Bernie Sanders might still be cheap, but he's sure not poor. And then she tweeted out, can Politico expect us to, can explain to, can Politico explain to us how photoshopping money trees next to the only Jewish candidate for president and talking about how cheap and rich he is, isn't anti-Semitic? Or are they just letting this happen because he's a progressive politician they don't like? Yes, I'm sure Politico is just out there to rip on Bernie Sanders. By the way, the idea that you can't say that Bernie Sanders being wealthy is a story because that's anti-Semitic, that no one knows Bernie Sanders is a Jewish candidate because he's an outspoken atheist. Like, I'm not sure, honestly, like we've now reached the point where pointing out that Tom Steyer is rich and donates a lot of money to politics is anti-Semitic, but saying that Jews are, are hypnotizing the world is not anti-Semitic in AOC land. Forgive me if I don't take her protestations on anti-Semitism particularly seriously. Okay, time for another thing that I hate. So I don't know why the media do this, but apparently it's a thing for the media to find some sort of semi-famous, quasi-famous actor or, or comedian to talk about politics in perhaps the dumbest possible way. The latest example of this comes courtesy of CBS News. So CBS News cut a video with a person named Busy Phillips who seems to play like the best friend in a lot of movies. And here is, and she cut a video on why the media need to pay more attention to periods. Not like the, not the, the, punctuation mark, the female bodily function. Here is a little bit of this dumb video from CBS News. Code Red, The Red Monster, Crimson Tide, Strawberry Week. There's so many euphemisms for having a period, whether it's your friend visiting, Aunt Flo, that time of the month. That's just something that we've grown up with, right? I've always thought that it was something embarrassing that um, I had to hide. I would never talk about it. I wouldn't talk about it with my friends. I wouldn't talk about it with anyone. We didn't talk about it at all. We have to mask it with other phraseology, and that makes the taboo persist. This sends the wrong message to little girls that they are not treated equally because they were born female. What now? I'm, I'm so, what? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly, kind of confused. So what is the giant taboo that everyone is talking about? It seems to me that female hygiene products, tampons, that, that, that panty liner, like all this stuff is available very cheap at the local CVS. And it seems to me that people are pretty well aware of, of periods. Which other bodily function do people talk about all the time in order to violate the stigma? What are we even talking about here? Like, I'm, I'm so confused. Like, it's not a medical problem. It's a normal bodily function. Uh, are, what's the advocacy for here? I, I'm, I'm bewildered. I'm bewildered. And every woman that I know who has daughters has talked to her, her daughters about this. Kids are taught about this in school, in sex ed classes, and in biology classes. Where is the taboo that I am? Is there a taboo that I'm not aware of about talking about periods? Where people are like, ooh, can't talk about that. Put them in the stocks. Where is this happening? This isn't a, a big piece at CBS News about why we can't talk about periods. Last I checked, CBS News is a pretty big outlet. 
I like the intense music underneath. If we don't talk about this bodily function, then what exactly? It's just, okay, I, I, we've reached the point of absurdity. Maybe our civilization has reached its end stage. <laughs> I got nothing for you. We'll be back here a little bit later today with a couple additional hours, or we'll see you here tomorrow. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Senior producer, Jonathan Hay. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. And our technical producer is Austin Stevens. Edited by Adam Saievitz. Audio is mixed by Mike Caromina. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Olvera. Production assistant, Nick Sheehan. The Ben Shapiro Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2019. Hey, everybody, it's Andrew Claven, host of The Andrew Claven Show. You know, the EU just held an election, and the establishment, the people in charge, were nearly wiped off the face of the earth. Everybody's talking about it, but nobody's talking about race. See, I wonder why people are afraid to talk about race. We'll talk about it on The Andrew Claven Show. I'm Andrew Claven. We'll get to more on this in just one second. First, Pure Talk believes in American values, and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving. 